We are now into what's called Jewish meditation. And I had mentioned that the Rebbe wanted man to work on the different dimensions of his being and to have an ADC Chudoy, to testify to his oneness. Now, part of that dimension is a self itself. And what the Rebbe wants is that man work on the self in a certain unique way. The self is bound to the physical body. Therefore, it cannot overcome the physical limitations. It's bound by it. In other words, the self must use the mind to perceive reality. It must use the eyes and so on. It cannot break the bond of the physical. That is a xera, a decree from heaven. So therefore, the self is bound by physical law. The self perceives the world only through the five senses and nothing else. The self does not even perceive its true nature because most people think that what they are, they are the human body or they are the mind. They don't perceive the true nature. <clears throat> the self cannot have an experience with the spiritual world or experience the spiritual world. It neither can perceive it or experience it because again, it's tied. What the Rebbe did is he gave the individual a mechanism whereby an individual, while he is still in the body, can suspend physical law and travel to a different existential plane. There is a mechanism to do that. The Rebbe gave man the mechanism. And he wanted man to do that. In other words, and we'll understand that more in the history, in the times when God was more revealed to creation, and he was more revealed previous times than he is now, he wanted man to culminate his avoidah, his experience with God, by actually experiencing God. Not just worshipping God through the mitzvahs and so on. There is actually a set of procedures which will get you to experience God himself, the Shekhinah himself, which is incredible. In that way, you can achieve, not only for yourself, incredible enlightenment. I mean, to be misdabek, to achieve clinging with the Shekhinah, which is the greatest manifestation of God, is mind-boggling. It's not an experience that it's impossible to describe it. But what that would do is that would culminate man's spiritual journey. So the Rebbe gave man a mechanism, and he wanted man to do that. To give man a mechanism where he can suspend his physical law and travel into different existential planes. <clears throat> now, in order to understand just some of those ideas, I'm going to briefly give just a small introduction. When we say God relates with the universe, we say that God is mashpia ahashpoh. I'm going to define words. The, the meaning of the word hashpah is an influence. We say that God influences. But what that really means is God, it's a, dis, it's a way of saying, when we say that God influences and then something happens, it really means that God acts. But God acts in an invisible mechanism. We do not perceive how God does anything. All we know is it happens. And there are ways of thinking how God does something. Because he is being and he just alters being. But without getting into that, God acts through an invisible mechanism. So we say that the Rebbe is mashpia, a hashpo, a shefa, that God sends out an influence. If you want to think of it as a force, if you want to think of it as an act or as a hashpo, it's all the same idea. Another word used to describe it is that God sends forth a light. Why do they use the metaphor of light? Because light is the mechanism by which we see, correct? We see because of light. But light is invisible, so light is an invisible mechanism. So we say God sends out a light, which really means he sends forth an invisible mechanism. See, That's why the word describes uh, the actions of God when he causes. They say he sends forth a light, that's the metaphor. Now, there are two kinds of hashpos, two kinds of results of the activities of God. One is that God created Hishchina, and that is the closest manifestation or representation of Him that a being can relate to. 
And the second hashpah, the second thing he did, was he created and he maintained the spiritual and physical universe. Now, therefore, the total number of variations in creations is equal to the total amount of hashpahs. Because everything he did was another hashpah, another act. Therefore, the totality of acts is the totality of all acts of creation. Now, every hashpah has a name. Every act of God has a name connected with God, has a name. And that name designates that activity or that act of God. What that name is, it really is, is it's, the name is a name of God insofar as He creates or He sends forth that activity. So in other words, when we call God Rachum, Rachum is a name of God insofar as He sends forth the idea called mercy or compassion. See? Same with all other names. Every Hashpur has a name. And the name is the name of God which refers directly to a specific Hashpur, a specific act that He does. Therefore, God has a name for every single thing He did. Because every Hashpur has a name. Therefore, all creation Everything God did has a name. Now you understand when it says that the Torah, the Torah is nothing more than the names of God, you understand what that means. It means that the Torah, which is the totality of the acts of God, is the totality of all His Ashpos. But then it's the totality of all His names. You see, that's why the Torah is the totality of all the names of God. But most of the names of God we do not know. Now, there is a name, a Shem, that refers to the Shekhin itself. That is a 72-letter name. That refers to the covet of God Himself, or the Shekhinah. It is obviously, since it refers to the entity, which is the greatest manifestation in being of God, it is obviously the holiest and most powerful Shem, or name of all. Now, you will ask me, what do you mean by the most powerful Shem? Well, there's a very interesting thing, and now you'll begin to see the concept of awareness, meditation, and the concept of Shemus. What the Rabbi Hashem provided man is he said that if you focus awareness intensely on a name, you will hook up to the name. What will happen then is that I will send forth that hashpah, or I will do that act, that that name designates, I will do that which the name says I do, and I will do it in the direction that you want it. Interesting. That means if you meditate on a Shem in the proper ways, what you do is you activate or you invoke a divine Hashpah, a real Hashpah, God invokes the Hashpah for you. And he directs it in the direction that you want. And this is done through meditating on the Shem. You can either verbally utter it, or you can mentally meditate it. But it's got to be with a profound focused awareness. The more you are aware, the more is your being connected to the name, the Shem. And that is what... And therefore, the greater representation that you as a man has with the Shem, that is the greater hashpah or the greater uh, invocation that God does for the name. Okay? That is the mechanism of hashpahs. And Shemus can invoke or activate the hashpah which is connected with the Shem if you meditate it with a focused awareness. That is the mechanism called Shemus. Now you know how and why it works. That's why people meditate on Shemus. Because, I shouldn't say too many people, because what they try to do is invoke certain hashpos, and if they are successful, then the Rabbanu actually does something for the person. It's a hashpah from the Rabbanu And if you meditate on the Shechina, well, need I say more. Now, what does all this mean? If you focus meditation, or if you focus awareness, and that is what meditation is, on Hashem. In other words, if you mentally 
imagine the Shem, or you verbally utter it, then you, in, you invoke the Hashpah, right, the influence or the force or the act of God that that particular name of God refers to. And it's in accordance with the will of the meditator. Now, what does this do for me? For you, for anybody, what does it do for man? Four things. And I guarantee you, they're all exciting. The first thing it does is that it gets you prophecy. That is how you become a prophet. See? You don't become a prophet by doing good deeds. You get other forms of spiritual divine inspirations. Prophecy was achieved by meditating on a Shem and what the Rabbi Hashem did, and I'll explain a little more, what the Rabbi Hashem did is the name that you meditated what was the name that refers to the Hashpah that God moves his Shekhinah and he connects it to you in a different Olam. Remember, you're represented all in the Olamas, right? So what the Rosham does is he takes his Shekhinah, or rather he takes you. In which world? In Olam Atzilus. That's pretty high up. He takes you in Olam Atzilus. He takes you, your consciousness, you. He takes you in the Shekhinah and he attaches it. That is what prophecy is. What that has, is that has an amazing effect on you down here. Why? Because what happens then is that all of a sudden, when you've achieved the pro prophetic state, after meditating on the Shem, I'll go, I'll go a little more into detail. What happens is, is the Hashpah moves the Shekhinah where it attaches to you in the level of Atzilus, which means that <coughs> all of a sudden, yourself becomes aware of a different universe, yet you're still in your body. Now follow me. Remember, there are no thoughts, no sensations. All there is is awareness. All of a sudden, in front of you, after saying the Shem, all of a sudden, in front of you, you see a spiritual being. You see it with your eyes. Not physical, not with the mental eyes, with the uh, physical eyes. You are aware of a presence, a true presence. But obviously the presence that you're aware of is not a spiritual being because you can't see spirituality. But it is spirituality as seen by you physically. But that's incredible. How could you see something in Oil Matzilis? Well, you can. Because you are misdabek with the Shekhinah. Therefore, in front of you, you see a spiritual being. Rather, you experience God himself in the level of Atzilis. Now, that is one phenomena. Another phenomenon is called Ruach HaKodesh. Where if you order the Shem, then in Olim Yitzira, you become attached to a Malach or a spiritual being. It's not the same as Olim Atzilis. But in Olam Yitzirah, you become attached to a being and you receive tremendous enlightenment, future ideas, whatever, which I'll go into a little more. That's the second product of the ability to invoke the Hashpah by meditating on Hashem. The third thing is something very interesting. It's what's called white magic. That if you want, and I'll tell you how it works. If, <laughs> if you want, you can violate the laws of nature. Nest. You can violate the laws of gravity and all other such kinds of activities. That's called white magic. But there's a way to do it through the Shemus. The fourth phenomena or the fourth effect of <clears throat> Shemus, Hashpah, is not white magic, it is black magic. And that's when you take up cahoots with the what's called the Sitra Akhra. And uh, I'll talk about that. Now, in other words, the key idea to remember is to meditate on a Shem invokes a Hashpah relative to that Shem and God is then Mashpia. He sends out a force which will then do what you are directing to do. 
and you've got prophecy, divine inspiration, white magic, and black magic, those are the results of these ideas. Now, in other words, <clears throat> the key idea is that the self, while it is still in the physical body and while it's still in the mind, okay, can experience worlds which are on a totally different existential plane. That's the key idea. Now, let me just talk a little more about prophecy, nevoah. Just as a sort of like get a feel of it. Nevoah is the attachment between you at an existential level and the Shekhinah itself. That's what Nevoah is. Okay? And again, you get Nevoah by invoking Hashem. And the Rebbe Hashem is Mizdabek, you with the Shekhinah. Now, what's the main reason that this occurs? There's only one reason. God wants you to cling to Him. That's all. The primary reason for Nevoah is what's called Vikus, attachment or clinging. That you should experience the divine. That is the completion of your journey. It's an incredible completion, let me tell you. Not that I've experienced it, but just conceptually, it is the, it is the ultimate in, in spirituality. It is the end of the journey. And the Rebbe wanted man to have that. But it must go through these procedures. Now, the attachment of Nevoah is the attachment to the covid of God himself, the Shekhinah itself, not merely to another spiritual entity. That is what true Dvekis is. And I guarantee you, it is the most profound experience you can ever experience in this world. And it is the greatest spiritual experience of all. I mean, that goes without saying. Now, When a person is mezdabek with the Shekhinah, remember, the Shekhinah is mezdabek with you at a different existential plane, and all of a sudden, in your focused awareness, you become aware of a totally different existential plane, and you are passive. You sit there in, as a passive, it's almost like watching a movie screen, where everything is shut off. You cannot actively shut the screen off anymore. You just sit there glued, and there's this movie playing in front of you. And that movie is Divine Revelations. Okay? That's what the picture that you're seeing, and you are passive. Now, besides the dvikas to God, clinging to God, you also may experience enlightenment, revelations of God Himself as He relates to the world which is not just profound, but it is a secret of what God, how God relates to the world, how God controls the word, world. Many times it comes out that you know future events. And you know events, not only future events, you know what happens. Why? Because you know from, not from the, um, the uh, lower repercussions of what God does. You got it straight from the boss, like they say. You know it because Mitzadar Rabbanishlam. You know what he's going to do to you or what he is doing to you. Mitzad his Shechinu, Mitzad his Yichud. It's a whole different way of knowing. Not only that, but many times people ask, how do you know you experience prophecy? Maybe it's a dream. Well, that's an epistemological question. The validity of knowledge. How do I know what I'm experiencing is what I'm experiencing? That's what epistemology is. Now, Embedded in the experience of prophecy is its own epistemology. In other words, the individual, the prophet, who is experiencing prophecy knows that it is God of a certainty. Now, we do not understand because knowledge to our mind can always be doubted. But in the prophetic experience is the validity of the experience itself. He knows it is God, and he knows it is God that is telling him this clearly. Now, remember, the essence of Nevoah is... Dvekas. Sometimes it includes attachment. Uh, sometimes it includes also enlightenment. Sometimes it includes future events. Sometimes it includes, and really, is the Rabbanishlam gives somebody a message through prophecy that he wants to deliver to others. But that was very rare. But that is not the essence of prophecy. Only a couple of prophets were uh, used as messengers. 
The essential idea of prophecy is that is the culmination of your journey into spirituality. Vekas. Now, it makes a big difference. There are conditions of prophecy. Since prophecy is the attachment of you and the Shekhinah, there are certain conditions you must meet. What are they? You must release the physical. You must be perish from ilm hazir. In other words, you have to give up the great homes, the chandeliers, and so on. Why? In other words, you have to dematerialize or de-emphasize your, your attachment to the physical. Why? Because you remember what I told you about the unconscious will? Could you imagine your unconscious will is meditating on a Shem, right? And the unconscious will is a thinking of how to get a cherry pie. And that's exactly what it's doing. As long as you are attached, as long as you are concerned about physical needs and so on, and you're really into the physical, making money and so on, then you're unconsciously thinking about materialism. That is a repugnance that immediately repudiates spirituality. Because the self on another level is thinking about materialism. Materialism is a repudiation of spirituality. So you've got to get rid of that. See, there were many, many prerequisites before you obviously can utter the Shem. Besides that, you've got to be able to meditate. You've got to focus the awareness intensely where the mind is in a state of what's called transcendental readiness. It is extremely sensitive to any spiritual entity that enters. And you can only do that if you get everything else out, all the extraneous ideas. Okay? Now, you also have to be noki from chet, no sin. Because what sin will do is that it will stop the shechina from hooking up to you. Because shechina doesn't want chatoim. You also have to go to the mikveh. Because tumor is a spiritual entity that is a barrier between God and you. So you've got to go to the mikveh. And in the, you also have to have the paradumor, which is the red heifer, which is the red cow that they burnt. And they sprinkled on you if you touched the dead body. You had to have that too. Because if you are Tomei in any way, you cannot achieve prophecy. It's impossible. Because the Shekhinah will not misdabik with somebody who's Tomei. Okay? These then are some of the conditions. The conditions, of course, for prophecy. Now, besides prophecy, there's also another phenomenon called Ruch HaKodesh. That is where you utter Hashem, same idea, you've got to be mitzvah, everything, because the spiritual beings who inhabit Oil Mitzirah also won't come to you for the same reasons. No sin, I mean, you have to do tshuva and so on, no tumah, mitzvah, no materialism, and you have to utter Hashem and you have to meditate, same idea. But the awareness that you have or the experience is not of the Shekhinah, it is rather of Oil Mitzirah. Okay? That is Ruach HaKodesh. Now, before the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, the Shekhinah was readily accessible to anybody who would enter this discipline. The Gemara says that Klai Yisrael had over a million Neviim, a million people doing this kind of Avodah. Oh, of course. Because everybody wants to culminate into the, 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 the final spiritual experience. What else is there? You had over a million people who were true prophets. Only a handful were sent out as messengers. Because the essence of prophecy is dvekas. Not to go around to give messengers or messages or to be, serve as an agent. Now, after the Chorban Bayes Rishon, what happened was prophecy ended. You know what that means? What that mean, means is that the Shekhinah can no more be mazdabic to you, even if you utter the name. Because the, when the basic English was destroyed, it meant that the Shekhinah was removed from the abode of man. No more can you pierce into the Oilem Atzilis. No more can you even get into the Oilem Bria. You're out. But you can still get into Ruach HaKodesh, which is Oilem Yitzira. And that's exactly what they did all the way up to the 5th century A.C.E. Ravana Bayim, his in their generation. Why? Because again, the ruch, because the ruchus you can misdabik with even after the Khorban bias. But 
after the after the fifth century AC, it stopped because there was a problem. There was no more tahara. There was no more poraduma because the last poraduma was made was around the time the second base of Mikdash was Chorov. Now the ashes lasted for another three hundred years because they used it very little. Once it was gone, that's the end of the experience. You can no more experience Ruach HaKodesh because we are all Tomei, at least from having touched a dead body. And to show you, there was a Tana, Rabbi Nechun Yubin HaKonor, who was a, one of the greatest Mikubolim of his generation. And Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmo were sitting there while Rabbi Nechun Yubin HaKonor was meditating in Oilem Yitzira. He was, he was gone. So they wanted to bring him back. So they took a, a beggar from Anida, a woman who was unclean, and they touched him, and he woke up. It doesn't report what he said or what he did to them. <laughs> but it shows you, but it shows you, it shows you how sensitive Ruchnius is the tumor or chet or whatever. They just touched him and he woke up. They just they threw him out of the uh, the oilimus and that was it. He, had a, he just immediately the experience vanished and he just went back out of focus and he was back, back again. Any case, now uh, that is Ruch Hakodesh. Now from Ruch Hakodesh you experience the same ideas, similar ideas. You got tremendous enlightenment, tremendous enlightenment. But of course it wasn't. You couldn't even compare it with Nevoah. It's not even the same experience. And Ruch Hakodesh ended. After the, uh, after the 5th century ACE, we can no more enter any of the Olamas above Oil Masiyah. Why? Because we don't have the Paraduma. Transcendental phenomena must have Tahara. In other words, to go from Masiyah into Yitzira, Brio, or Atzilus, it doesn't work. We must have the Paraduma. It is possible, however, to meet people or spirits in Oil Masiyah. That is left open to us because you don't need the tahara. Because st- we are in Oil Masiyah. I don't have to be taught to go out of Oil Masiyah. Therefore, there are ways, Seamus, that you can actually encounter the beings of Oil Masiyah. And Oil Masiyah is not only inhabited by man. If you thought that you were the only inhabitants, you'd get a big mistake. There's a lot of people living around here that's not even, uh, that's not even paying rent. <laughs> And they are all kind, and they have, and they are all kinds of spirits or whatever. But you have to be very careful, for a specific reason. Oilamasia is such a world where, without going into the, the mechanics and the, and the structure, Oilamasia is the world of the Sultan. Without defining what that means, that's his world. So m- most of the beings going around in Oilamasia are half truth and half false, because in Oilamasia there's a mixture of false and good evil and, and good and evil, falsehood and truth. So if you wind up with somebody from Masia, you don't know if he's telling you the straight story. So it doesn't always work. But anyway, that is basically what's left to us. And we understand what the mechanics were of Nevoah, Ruach HaKodesh, and what presently we can do. Now, white magic was accomplished by an interesting idea. The structure, the structure, the, it, there is all physical events and objects are tied to a spiritual counterpart universe. In other words, you ever see a marionette show where whatever you move here moves the marionettes, right? We actually are structured the same way. Every single thing that exists in this world is tied to what's called a koyach nivdol, a transcendental force. It's really a transcendental entity. It's an entity that's exactly your counterpart. You, ever, you, know, you know, sometimes they talk about science fiction where you have another universe where there's a carbon copy of you walking around. Well, there's truth in that statement. The only thing is not another physical universe, it is a spiritual universe. There is an exact copy of this world, but it's a spiritual copy, so it looks different of this universe, of you, of every event. Now, what happens is that, let's say the Rabboni Shalom says, I want this person to fall. And this is the way it works. He commands an angel who is 
in charge of a certain string of the guy and he makes the string, he moves the string and all of a sudden the guy trips. That's the way it works. Everything besides man is always controlled by malachim. Any being that has no bechira, no free will, is, are, they are all controlled by angels who control the koyach nivdol, right? Who then ultimately control the, the uh, attachment. Only man can reverse the process because we have free will. We can walk around and pull the strings of the, what, the controlling device. That we can do that. That's what Bechira gives us. That the Malochim are not always in charge of our strings. We can pull them ourselves. Okay? Now, every Malach, there's Malochim which are in charge of every single atom in the universe. That's what it means that every blade, there's a Malach that says grow. In other words, every blade or every atom has a Koyach Nivdo that represents it. And there's a Malach in charge of it. And only man can reverse the process because he has Bechira. Those koyach nivdol, those transcendental forces, have what's called prescribed operations and innate operations. They only, a malach can only move that in a prescribed manner. You know what that prescribed manner is called? Teva, natural law. In other words, things always fall down. The malach cannot make the koyach nivdol where the thing falls up. But it is possible that if you got in control of that koyach nivdol, you could make it for an object fall up. Why? Because the Koyach Nivdal has a much wider range of movement than what the Malach does. But what the Malach does is he can only control it. He is given instructions that you can only move it in this manner. And Malachim are only moving these Koyachs in that manner and that's what Teva is. You see? But what happens if you gain control of your strings? Or anybody's strings? You could move the Koyach Nivdal in the innate manner. In other words, then the laws of the Koyach Nivdal itself would come into operation and whatever it can do, it would do. So if you want, you can, you can literally change Teva. How do we do that? Shamus. There are certain Shamus that if you meditate on, okay, again in a meditative state, what happens is that those Shamus designate the power or the act of God ordering the Malochim. They refer to the order. What you do is you mention the Shem, and the Rabbanishim then throws an additional force to the Malach. Now, when a Malach gets more power, he's got to use it, because that's the Ratzon Habere. More so, he's got to use it in the direction that you want it used. So if you want to use the counterman Teva, he must do that. And that's exactly how white magic works, where, again, you see a Shem, the hashpor is evoked onto the malach because the Shem represents the hashpor of that malach. He's got more power. He's got to change the operations of the koyach nivdol from its prescribed operations to its innate operations. And lo and behold, all of a sudden you see miracles occur. That is what uh, white magic is all about. You have to be very careful, obviously, when you do it because it can have profound, if you can do it, because it can have profound re repercussions on you. If you fool around, they'll get you back. Because malochim, malochim are like people. They don't like to be bothered. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. If you bother them, because what happens is when you say Shem, they, you, are, you forswear them by the Shem. They must do what you want. They'll get you back. So if you're, if you're not toho, if you're not really, or if the motives are not very pure, you have to be very careful. And there are, many, there are certain people throughout history who fooled around and they really fell, and I mean fell, because they manipulated malochim that way. Now, the interesting thing about this is that you do not have to be toho to do this, because you're not attaching yourself to a spiritual being or to the Shekhinah. You're merely getting the Rebunshim to send power to a malach to move a koyach nivdol, a transcendental force, in a different manner. You don't need Tahara for that. Anyway, again, the mechanism of Shemus by meditating gives you the ability of white magic. Now, to conclude the ideas, it also gives you the ability of sorcery, and that's really what black magic is. Forget about the baloney that's practiced outside. 
True sorcery is Shemus, again, always Shemus. But this time, the Shemus represent the Koyach, not of God, but of the Sitra Achra. Okay? In other words, if you m say Hashem, meditate, then you will achieve an attachment, a true spiritual attachment, except the partner that you picked up isn't God or his angels, it is the Sutton himself. Now, just like there is profound divacus in the attachment between you and God, there is profound destruction between the attachment between you and the Sutton. Obviously. If you thought that you could become evil, you have no idea how evil you could become when you hook up to the Sutton. And the way you hook up to the Sutton is by the Shem. And again, he also has the ability to mashpia for reasons because in the cosmological structure he's equal to God. That's, that's what he's given that power. He also can mashpia. And through the Shem, you hook up to the Sutton. And through the Shem, he is ne mashpia, something that you want done. And he's so powerful that he can move the Malach out of the way and manipulate the Koyach Nivdal himself. Because that's the way it works. But anyway, uh, those are the forces or the abilities, again with Shemus and meditation, but of Kishif, sorcery, and so on. If you want, you can get the Sutton to order Shadim for you, spirits, right? That's demonology. So that's how it works. Again, always through the Hashpor of the Sutton. He'll get demons to do what you want for you. He'll move, he'll move the malochim aside. He'll take the koyach nivel, do what he wants. And you could do the same thing the white magic can do. But of course, there's a tremendous price you pay. And the price is, you ever hear the story of Daniel, the, uh, the devil and Daniel Webster? That's what it is. That's exactly what it is. You've made a pact with the devil. He has an enormous shlita over your neshama because you've attached yourself to him and you've used his hashpo. Enough said about the sudden. <laughs> now, we have now finished Jewish meditation, and we are now up to yoga. We are now entering the area of yoga. Remember, we now have to try to understand what is the Eastern doctrines. How do they relate to Judaism? If you recall the questions that I asked. And how does Judaism view their experiences? Now, there is a very significant there is a very significant Zoya, and the Zoya relates an incident. It says that Rebbe Abba once went to a city of people who are descendants of the people of the East, which I'll mention. And he went to them, and they said that they had, this is people of the East, East of Eretz Israel. And, he, and they said to him, you know, we have wisdom from our ancestors. And uh, we'll show it to you. So they brought him one of the books. And he took a look at it. And he looked in the book and it said very, very interesting ideas. It said there that if you direct your mind toward the side of holiness, then it is the Holy Spirit that will have their influence on you. If, however, you direct your mind to the side of Tumah, unholiness, then it is they that will, of course, influence you. Then the Zoya continues and says that he then looked further in the books and he saw that they had all kinds of idolatrous rites and rituals and practices and so on. And it also had their name, Shemus Tumah, which I was referring to, the Kishif and so on. That it had that there and it also had how to meditate on these names. So he told them a very interesting statement. He said, you know, he said these things are very close to the true Torah, but you have to be careful. He said, you know where these things come from? You got them from your descendants, from your ancestors, people of the East. You know where those people of the East got them from? They got them from the sons of the concubines of Avram. Avram Avinu, Rashi says, it says in the Torah that he gave them Atonis to the sons of the concubines, concubines, and he sent them eastward to the land of the East. 
while Yitzchak was still alive, while he was still alive. And of course, so they shouldn't interfere with the Yerusha of Yitzchak. But Rashi says, what were the Matanas? The Matanas were Shemus Tumah. They were names of, of, uh, of impure spiritual beings. And Avram gave it to his, Avram gave it to his uh, sons, and they went eastward to the land of the east, and they gave it to the people of the east, and that's how these people got it. Now, what's interesting about that is that why did Rabbi Abba say that what you have is similar to Torah? Interesting. What that shows you, what that Zoya shows you is a very significant idea. It tells you that the meditative arts of the East started from Avram. Where do we see that? You remember I said that meditation is focused awareness and it is needed for any concentration on any Shem. When you focus awareness on a Shem, because you want to do either Nuvu or Ruch HaKodesh, or uh, Shinu Teva, which is white magic or black magic, you always have to have the meditative power. What Avram Avinu gave to his sons is not only what to meditate on, but how to meditate. They took it to the East, and that's where it remained. What happened there is that obviously they distorted these ideas. And these ideas became very different. It evolved into uh, Hinduism or Buddhism, because Avram Avinu was far earlier. And obviously, it got distorted. Now, in order to appreciate this, let's understand yoga. Most people think of yoga as a specific discipline which is related to meditation. What is yoga really? You have to listen carefully. The essence of yoga is two words, liberation and enlightenment. Liberation from what? And enlightenment on what? On who? Okay. There's a Sanskrit word that means maya. Maya means illusion. What yogis maintain is this, that the self is God. You are all God. The fall of man consists of the fact that the self went into a human body, and the self now thinks that it's a body and a mind. It is now under the illusion that it is human. Again, what yoga says is that the self is God, is Brahma, is universal consciousness, the universal mind, which is God. But what happened is that the self was placed in a body, and the self is now under an illusion that it is human. Not only that, it thinks that its fulfillment is achieved outside, or rather outside the self. In other words, in the world of delights, in the world of physical pleasures. It interacts with you know, jobs and so on, and that's the way it gains happiness and achievement. It's wrong. Maya is an illusion. The self, the only way the self can gain happiness is by reintegrating itself back with the universal mind. So, the chesarn, the set, was that the self was divided from God. And the tikkun, according to yoga, the avoida, the task of man, is to reintegrate one back to God. See? In a nutshell, that's what it's all about. Now, as such, there is a branch of yoga called Raja Yoga, which was uh, uh, enumerated by an individual called Pantanjali, who lived um, second century BCE, very early, around the time of Hanukkah. And he organized all the yogic doctrines. I say that for a reason, by the way. You see by the history. Uh, he organized all the yogic doctrines. He synthesized it into what's called the sutras of Pantanjali, the threads or the aphorisms. It's a number of statements that organizes all yogic doctrine. And in it he says that. He says that we are all God. We were separated, and we think that we're human. And the idea, the task is to become God again. Now, how do we become God? This is what uh, Patanjali sets, uh, you know, uh, mentions in the, in the sutras. He says that this way. There is an entire eight-step process by which man can reintegrate himself with the universal mind. By the way, the word yoga means union. That's what it means. And the reason why it's called yoga is because the objective of it is to unionize yourself, 
to again unify itself back with God. There's an eight-step process. And basically, to go through them very rapidly, the first one is called yama, which is really injunctions not to do. Don't steal, no violence, no greed, and so on. Now, don't think that the reason why they say don't do these things is because of moral reasons. No. The reason why they say is because if you do these things, you will become attached to the physical world. For instance, if you get violence, don't become violence. Don't become violent, because what does violence mean? Violence means you're angry. Violence is, by the way, the aggressive form of anger. It means you're angry. Why are you angry? Because you're frustrated. But why are you frustrated? Because you perceive that you are frustrated because you are not getting some need in the external world. So then don't get angry. See? It's not because don't get violent because of a moral, ethical reason. It's because disattach yourself from the physical world. Don't be greedy. Again, don't think that your fulfillment lies in objects. Don't steal. Don't think your fulfillment lies in his object is you have to steal it. And so on. All the moral statements are not moral statements. They are really behaviors which will enhance your disattachment with the world. So that's yama. Niyama is uh, positive statements. What to do. What to do. Uh, and uh, among the niyamas are you have to take care of yourself. Again, why? Not so you should remain healthy. So because if you're not healthy, then you can't become, you can't get into the meditative states. Again, the same idea. The yamas, niyamas, the behaviors you ought to do and the behaviors you should refrain from have nothing to do with morality. They are only there because of disattachment. Now, that's why you have these ideas. Now, the next stage of yoga is called asana, which means posture position. Because what yoga is now going, to, and, uh, now going to require of you is that you must achieve the meditative state. That's the way you reintegrate. We have to understand why, how. An asana simply means a posture. And what Pantanjali was interested is he said, you've got to assume a posture where you can sit for a long amount of time in a fixed position and be comfortable. Because if, this, if your body is uncomfortable, you'll be distracted. And if you're distracted, it'll ruin your concentration. So that's the asana. The fourth level is what's called pranayama, which is breath control. Because if you do your breathing right, you will achieve tranquility of the mind. It helps to retard the flow of thought. Now, those are the first four. It is at the fifth that we begin to see meditation. The next fifth stage is called pratyahara. What is that? Pratyahara is when you have to learn how to withdraw yourself from all senses. Right? Sense withdrawal. Remember? Remove or don't allow yourself to feel any sensations bodily or perceptually. That's what pratyahara is. The sixth stage is called dharana. Now dharana is when you suspend not only or you cease not only the, the sensations but the mental activities also. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? When you suspend all the mental activities. But dharana is a stage <clears throat> when you're trying to suspend everything and focus awareness but you still have thoughts keep coming in. So the seventh stage is called dhyana. Now, dhyana is where you begin to see the payoff. Dhyana is equivalent to the meditative state of which I had mentioned previously, where there is a total cessation of mental activity and there is no more sensation uh, bodily or perceptual and there's no more mental activity. There is an intense focus awareness. Now, Sounds very much like Jewish, medi uh, uh, Jewish uh, meditation, doesn't it? One switch. One knetch. What yoga says is that you must meditate, assume, let's assume, on an object. You focus awareness on that object. Now, in Judaism, it is sufficient to intensely focus on the object, and that's all. But what happens in yoga, yoga says is that you must keep intensely focusing on the object until you cease being aware of the object through the awareness of the mind. That's the trick. Remember, how, how, do, we, how, how do we aware of things? Because that itself is a mental activity. But Judaism uses the mental activity of the mind called awareness in an intense focus. What yoga says is get rid of that too. Don't be aware of that object because of the awareness of the mind. 
So if you meditate on something long enough, what will happen is that you, the subject-object relationship, because there's a subject that is aware of the object, what will happen is that the subject will not become aware of the object. The subject will be become the object. So it will know the object or be aware of the object because it is the object. You see the switch. So it is no more satisfied with knowing the object through the mental faculty of awareness, where Judaism stops, but yoga continues and says you've got to catapult yourself right out of the mind. Don't even be aware of the object, mitzad awareness of the mental facility. You've got to be aware of the object because you become the object. And if you do it long enough, that's exactly what happens. You catapult yourself right out of awareness, you become the object. The, the, the focus becomes so intense that you literally, the identities merge and you become the object. That state, when you become the object and you've put the mental awareness behind you, that state is called samadhi. And what the yogis say on samadhi is an unbelievable ecstasy. It is an incredible feeling when you've done that. Incredible ecstasy, exhilaration. Not only that, but at that point of time, you feel as if you are tremendously in unity with all creation. You feel as if you and everything are one. That's the second. The third thing is you gain a tremendous amount of knowledge, obviously not via the mental apparatus. You've gained it being part of a different plane almost of existence, not the mental question is where are you right now besides besides the uh, the uh, besides the unity and the knowledge and the ecstasy they also think that they are God see they are fooled into that because they think once they are unified with everything they must be God because only God has that kind of a unity with everything now where did yoga go wrong what do they do what yoga does is very interesting. Judaism is not interested in doing what yoga does. What yoga does is yoga says, now the way Judaism would view yoga, is yoga not only gets the self out of body, no mental activities, no sensations, it even gets it out of the mental faculty called awareness. But then if it's out of the mind or the nefesh then what is it? It is what's called the nefesh. It is my belief that what the state that they arrive at is the nefesh in the oil masiyah. And that explains why they have those feelings. And if you ask me a question, does a guy have an ashama? The answer is yes. Now, a guy has an ashama. Not the same as a Jew, but he has also an ashama. Now, they have achieved of divesting themselves of the physical and the mental. And they are in a state of what's called a loosening of the bonds between the nefesh and the nefesh tachtoina. And that explains their state of ecstasy. Because when you leave the world and you become nefesh, which is spiritual, there's an incredible ecstasy. Because you're mamish ruchnis in that sense. It also explains their unity. Because in a ruchnis digger world, remember, there's a much greater perception of what? Of unity. It's only in in the physical world that we see nothing. So that is why they experience the tremendous unity. Because even if you're in Ulamasiya, but if you're a nefesh, you experience that unity. They experience knowledge because they are aware not via the mental faculties. They are aware via the fact that they are nefesh and they receive their knowledge through other avenues. This is why they have knowledge. And the reason why they feel they are God, of course, is because of that feeling of unity. This is my feeling what Samadhi is. It is a projection out of Nefesh Tachtoinam into Nefesh and Il Masiyah. And that is where their error comes from. Now, Judaism looks at that and says, what's the point of it all? Why would anybody want to become a Nefesh? The objective isn't to become a Nefesh. The objective is to spiritually attach yourself to the transcendental worlds which is the Atzilis, Bria, and Yitzira, that's the culmination of spirituality. There is no spirituality merely in divesting yourself 
of nefesh tachtoino, you merely isolate self as a nefesh, as a nefesh, as a nefesh. Spirituality or the culmination of the journey of spirituality is an attachment to the ruchnistig entities. And this is the way the response that Judaism would say. That is why Judaism does not suspend the awareness of the mental faculty. It focuses the awareness on the Shem in order to get out of Oilum into the Oilomus Elyonis. That is the experience of Judaism and why it is so different than yoga. And that is what Rabbi Abba said. It is similar because they get also meditative. But it's similar, but it's not the same because why are you projecting yourself out of the mental sphere? There's no point. There is no ruchnistic accomplishment by becoming a nefesh. Other than the fact that you are a self that is out of mind. Okay, that is the understanding of yoga. Now, which brings us to the history of meditation. And I'll try to make this quick. The history of meditation is really mitzah the primus of the Bria. Let me show you something. The Shechina is revealed in the Beis HaMikdash. Okay, what happens? The Beis HaMikdash is destroyed, right? So because of that, the Beis HaMikdash is destroyed. What happens? The focal spiritual experience which happens as a result of that is what's called Siluk Shechina. Now, the, the focal idea or the tragedy of Kleisrael in the Chorben Bayes wasn't the destruction of a house. It was what's called Siluk Shechina. The Shechina left us. That is why prophecy ended. That's exactly why prophecy ended. So no more could you go into the Oilam Atzilis or Oilam Bria, even with the Shem. Okay, but Ruach HaKodesh was still extant. Now, because prophecy ended, Chazal had to get rid of a Yetzirah. Why? There always has to be an equal inclination toward good and evil. Man in those days had a tremendous spiritual inclination. So therefore, he could either be attracted toward Judaism, or he could be attracted to avoid the Zorah. Man had a tremendous taiva, a pleasure, a, a, a craving for spirituality, which, was, which we do not experience today. And therefore, the Yetzirah of Avodah Zorah was extant. We don't know what the Yetzirah of Avodah Zorah. There are many mitzvahs in the Torah which say don't erect idols and so on. And we all look at it and say, like, you know, why would anyone want, want to put up an idol? Who cares? Because we don't have that Yetzirah. Now, Chazal destroyed that Yetzirah in the time of Ezra. Why did they do that? Because once prophecy was gone, then the equation was unequal. Then man could no more achieve a tremendous spiritual experience prophetically or through the Shekhinah. He could only do it through Avodah Zarah. You might, and he had a tremendous taiva for Avodah Zarah. So you had to get rid of the taiva of Avodah Zarah. That is why Chazal got rid of the Avodah Zarah taiva. Because once prophecy ended because the destruction of the first base of Migdash, they had to get rid of... Uh, they had to get rid of... Um, uh, avoid the Zorah also. Now, but wait a minute. What I'm going to say now is too good to stop. <laughs> know a rule. When we lose a privilege, you know who gets it? The Sutton. The Sutton, because that's his kitrug, that's his prosecution. They don't deserve to have it. I want it. And because we don't deserve it, he gets it. Okay. We lost prophecy. So Chazal also took away the eight Sahara for Avodah Zorah. There would be no equal Nisayim. Who got it? No. Well, the Sutton got it. But what happens is that the Sutton then gives it to man, to Goyim. And he uses the Goyim to punish Israel with the very present that they had. That is a very important principle that you will see many times. If you look, what happened at the time of the Chorben Bayes Rishon? Two incredible events. Intellection, or the ability to understand reality through reason, went to the West, Greek philosophy. Socrates, Plato were at the same time as the Chorben Bayes Rishon. 
and experiential knowledge, intuition, went to the East. Buddha, Confucius, Laozi. Okay? Why do you think they all happened at the same time the bias vision was destroyed? Because we lost the gift of prophecy, the gift of meditation, which is part of the whole prophetic experience. Without prophecy, meditation is almost meaningless. We lost that. We lost the ability to achieve intense self-states where we can divest from physical. Therefore, and we lost the ability to achieve profound knowledge from the attachment to the Shekhinah. Therefore, the Goyim got it. So the intellection, the intellect way of getting reasoning went to the West. That's why Greece became all of a sudden Chochmah. And the Chochmah of the intellect went to Greece of the Jews. The Hasoga, the Enlightenment, went to the Greeks. And the experience, the meditative experience, went to the East, the meditative experience. Now, that's what happened. As time went on, the same thing happened. The next base Hamigdash was destroyed, right? And again, since we lost the second base Hamigdash, which is the beginning of the end even of Ruach HaKodesh, it means also that the Goyim are going to get something new. What, what was founded right after the Chorb Maishani? Christianity. And Christianity again is the trade-off. We lost the Hasogas of Elokus, that God is one. Therefore, they usurped the whole religion. We said that we have the Mashiach, they say they have the Mashiach. We say that we have the Panemius of the Torah, the inner understanding of the Torah. The, the, they say they have the New Testament. We say that we are Israel, they say they are Israel. Christianity is nothing more than a copy. It's an anti-Judaism. It's not a religion by itself, it's an anti-Judaism. Again, the same principle. We lost it, they got. Next time, Ruach HaKodesh was lost around the 5th century BCE. Not only that, Islam arose BCE. And not only that, or AC I mean. In the 5th century is when Muhammad, or well, for 6th century there, 500 and something, is when you had Islam, we lost Ruach HaKodesh, and also that's when the Jews really went into Golis. Is there a connection? Of course. We went into Golis, which means that we now had to, the job that we now had to do is to go into the nations and remain righteous. It means to go into the, what's called the Klippa, to go into the Sutton's domain and still remain at Sadiq. Okay? What that meant is that the, the ability to contact the spiritual is lost. Because once you have to go into the Sutton's domain, you cannot take anymore the arts that give you the attachment to the Ruchnistic beings. In other words, since the Golas started really, which means that we now have to go into the Sitrach or the Sutton's domain, you cannot take with you the ability to attach yourself to Ruchnistic beings because the Sutton is exactly antithetical to the attachment to spirituality. And once you go among the nations, which means you have to go into the Sutton's domain, which is what we did, we lost those arts. That's why the Poraduma ceased then, and that's why we lost even the Ruach HaKodesh, which is the last vestige of our transcendental experience. Now, once we went to Golis, okay, then the one who is supposed to afflict us is Asav or Rome. But since Asav or Rome can destroy us, so therefore Rome was catapulted into a religion called Christianity. And since Jews would now spread all over the world, therefore Rome had to also be able to spread all over the world. So Rome became Christianity, which is a religion. And the religion can follow us wherever we go. But to make sure that the Jews are not destroyed, Islam had to be resurrected. So Islam can be a check on the religion of Asaph, which is Christianity, in order that Jews should survive. Everything is an exact repl replica. Now there's... That, that is why meditation disappeared. Exactly paralleling our loss, it went to the Goyim. That's why we, we and once the Avoida, the task of Jews, had to be going to the Klippa, which is the uh, Sutton or the nations, we had to lose the whole idea of spirituality among the nations. Now, one more idea, and that is that meditation 
was resurrected in the year, well, it, it, there's a tremendous interest in meditation, but it really started uh, with Avram Abu Lafia, which is 1240. Now, 1240 is the beginning of the last day of creation, because 1,000 years of creation is equal to one day. So therefore, 5,000 years means five days have passed. The sixth day of creation is 1240, or the year 5,000, which is Erev Shabbos. Erev Shabbos is the beginning of the Emois HaMashiach. Therefore, the meditative arts or the meditative interest is now coming back because we are now in the domain of Erev Shabbos, the 6,000th year. And at that time, what was founded around 1240? The Zoya was founded, right? The Bahir was founded. Many ideas, many books were founded and at that time, Abu Lafya lived, and he's the one who started a lot of the meditation and so on, because that was the beginning of the Yemaisa Mashiach, the last day of creation, the year 5000, which was 1240. Now, <coughs> I can go on, but uh, the, the main idea is that right now, we are almost up to the year of 1990, and the year of 1990 of the six-day clock is... Noon, Chatzois. In other words, noon of the sixth day of creation is equivalent to the year 1990. We are four years away from noon, and after noon, you begin to get ready for Shabbos. That's why meditation gets more and more applicable and gets greater and greater hisurus as we get closer to 1990, and that's the for Erev Shabbos. And I'd like to end the shir on that note. That taka we should, that Erev Shabbos means the you have to prepare yourself for the seventh day, which is Yemaisa Mashiach, or actually it's the seventh day. Yeah. Anyway, what I uh, I'd like to end the shir by saying that we should all taka bizoicha to see the Yemaisa Mashiach. Where, by the way, meditation and nevuah will be as commonplace as breathing is. And that will be the true restoration of prophecy.